marketing friends. I'm so excited to share this episode with you today. I'm chatting with Diana Lucacci. She's the CEO and co-founder of True Impact, where they combine brain science and marketing expertise to offer consumer neuroscience research for marketers, UX researchers, and advertisers. So what the heck does that mean? What do they actually do? Well, traditional research can show what people say they think they will do, but that isn't always what they actually do. There's the gap there. And one thing I learned coming up in the business is that logic only gets you so far in marketing. It's actually appealing to emotion that drives behavior. And Diana's company uses science to help predict that behavior, which is extremely helpful from a design perspective as we're creating campaigns for clients that are sometimes investing millions of dollars in their marketing efforts. So whether you're a marketer or a brand leader or somewhere in between, I think you'll find what Diana has to say very intriguing. So let's give it a listen and I'll see you on the other side. I am so excited to have Diana on the show. I met Diana at an Amen conference, and you guys have probably heard me talk about Amen in the past. It is a network of agencies that we belong to, and Diana has a great relationship with Amen, has been a speaker at our most recent conference in Indianapolis. And so I asked Diana to come on the show and tell us a little bit about her expertise. So welcome, Diana. I'm so glad to have you. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. So typically, I start every conversation kind of understanding my interviewee's story, both their personal and professional background. You have a degree in neuroscience and psychology. Talk about what drew you into that and sort of how you would describe in layman's terms what it is you do every day. Yeah, absolutely. I grew up actually at a time in Romania, shortly after the fall of the Soviet regime that was taking over the country for about 50 years. So what that did is essentially I grew up with a lot of information coming at me from the media and having to discern what is true, what is false. I've seen how the news is being manufactured and produced in front of my eyes as a child. And that just kind of sat with me. I put that in the back of my head. And then as I got older, I started being curious about people and why they do what they do. How do you plant an idea so that people internalize it? And what's the mechanism behind that, right? From a scientific perspective, I became interested in motivation. So as soon as I had a chance to dive deeper and I came across programs around neuroscience, around psychology at the University of Toronto, for me, it was like, oh my goodness, I can learn about the hardware, which is the brain and the wiring. And I can also learn about the software, which is the psychology and the mind and connect the dots and really understand why do people do what they do or at least get closer to that. The drive to marketing came a little later. I kind of realized that my personality, my interest wasn't really in the academic sphere. I wanted to kind of take what I've learned in neuroscience and apply it to business and take it to the boardroom somehow. That's all I knew. Oh my goodness. Well, I know you and I were sitting at dinner the first night we met and I'm like, what, why did you get into this? And I think you said something like, cause I'm crazy and you have to. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me a little bit more, unpack for us, were there key sort of moments in your life that like drew you down this path of being so interested in the brain and the science of it all? First, it was coming from a family of journalists at a time when media was not very regular. Early 90s, communist Romania was just transitioning to a democracy. The news was very fuzzy. And I got to see with my own eyes how a headline was turned into a full article and very little fact check, checking, and then the information would be out. So 
that kind of started early on that curiosity between what is a fact, what is fiction. And then the interest at a personal level is a little selfish because I'm also curious about why I do what I do. So you have to have a little bit of a drive for growth and self-improvement and curiosity by yourself if you're trying to optimize the way you live and your quality of life. And those are things just kind of connected. And it made sense that I look at psychology. That's why you're the perfect interviewee for the show, because we cover both the business side of things and the personal development side of things. Talk a little bit about your career background. So what are the steps you've made along the way? If I could talk to myself in university right now, I would probably provide some reassurance that you can combine fields and you can make something of your own. Like in my case, I took marketing and neuroscience and combined them into something that was fascinating and interesting to me. So I always knew I was going to end up in business while I was studying neuroscience. I didn't know what it was going to be called. The field did not exist at the time. It picked up around 2011, actually, when Nielsen acquired a neuromarketing company out of California. And so when that kind of happened, I, I felt like, there's movement in the industry. There's a new industry being created. And so I had at least five or six years of working in marketing under my belt. I was thinking, I'm going to get back to the science of things. Let me just kind of do this practice, right? Like in the field sort of work. And it was great because I feel like what made me good at marketing was the psychology and the neuroscience background to understand if I use this word or that expression or this image, I just had a gut feeling that it would have been perceived better. So that was kind of my trial and error days. Those were the moments when I could try different campaigns and see what the data came back. And I had these theories in my head that I was testing based on what I learned in school. Sure. And so I had the chance after working in marketing for, I think about eight years at that time when In 2012, a group of about 30 people in Amsterdam, we got together to talk about neuromarketing and how can science inform business. And it was very controversial at the time. I got only negative kind of feedback for the most part in the first year. It was pretty difficult because of the misconceptions around it. But I'm that type of personality where I feel like if it matters and if I'm interested in it, Being told no just makes me want it more. So I was like, I don't want to get up in the morning doing something that everybody knows and agrees on. And it's fun to get a chance to do something for the first time. I'm going to pause you there because I have to ask. So you brought 30 people together. Why? Who were these people? Like, what was the pushback at the time? And what kinds of conversations were you having? Yeah, the Neuromarketing Science and Business Association, the NMSBA, was formed in around 2011, 2012. And so when... When this group got connected, it was literally, I'm not sure how I heard about them, but they were looking for representatives from each country. And a couple of people put up their hands from various countries. I was like, I'm here from Canada. I'll show up and I'll come and we can, you know, see if this could be a field, what would it look like and things like that. Nobody thought about commercializing it yet because it was a very kind of different camps. You had the really scientific approach where when you're trying to do neuroscience research for medical purposes, it is cost prohibitive to apply it to business. Mm. You need to adapt it a little bit so that you can meet the timelines and budgets for the business world. And so at the time, none of this was on the radar, but it was just kind of the conversation around, can this be a field? 
Should it be? How would it look like? I chaired that, that organization for about eight years. And the pushback initially in the industry, and I've done a lot of media interviews and print and so on, was things like, well, can you read my mind? Can you control my brain? Are you zapping my brain? Right. So these were the kinds of things that we had to start off really simple and kind of really define. No one can make you get up off the couch and go buy that bag of chips. Like, sure, it's you who chooses to do that. Right. Can we make a better ad that doesn't confuse you? Yes. Yes. So I've noticed after five years in business, so from 2012 to 2017, it was kind of fuzzy, wild west. But then the conversation started getting more educated from the marketing side and the questions turned around ROI. Yes. What can we do with it? Okay. So all that said, I think that our listeners probably are still thinking, what is it? What is this crazy intersection between the brain and business and what do you do? So maybe you'd share a little bit about that in the context of true impact, maybe some of the services you guys provide and how this discipline comes to life for marketing. Definitely. For the better part of the last decade, we have been providing market research services that instead of asking people to tell us what they think and what they prefer via survey or focus group, our approach is asking no questions. So we have essentially over the last decade have gathered groups of people, have tested people one at a time, but essentially it's face to face with a person and they are equipped with different technologies on them. So there is a tool for measuring their eye tracking. There are these goggles that you can wear and it tracks kind of where the eye is going, pupil dilation, gaze pattern, and lots of different information like that. Very interesting to know. And then you have brain measurement via EEG, which are headsets that measure the electrical activity at the surface of the brain. And based on where the activity is happening, it indicates a certain type of response. And what we have done is we've connected the dots between where do people look, what is their brain reacting to, and sometimes we would also add in heart rate variability to determine if there's a degree of emotional intensity at any point during that experience. So that data is essentially attention data, emotion data. And then at the end, we would introduce maybe a survey because we want to know the difference between how do people feel and what do they say? You know, there's always a gap there. Sure. So it's not sort of in lieu of other kinds of traditional research. It's just more of an and in some cases. Okay. Yeah. If you think about wanting to understand a human being, ideally, you would know what gets their attention, what triggers their emotion, what do they say, what do they do? And traditionally, with surveys and focus groups, we've only done what do they say, what do they do? We know those pieces. But what got their attention, what triggers their emotion? influences the rest of the journey, right? So all these things are connected. I mean, that's one of the sound bites that stood out to me from the talk I heard you give is that people will tell you what they think they would do, but what would they actually do in the moment, right? And I'm a big believer in marketing. You know, a lesson I learned coming up in the business is that like logic only gets you so far. It's actually emotion that really drives what you will do, right? And I'm sure that's kind of the stories that you have to tell your clients. Exactly. And even in contexts like B2B, I get some pushback. Yeah, but I'm B2B. Well, you're still selling to humans and they need to trust you. And trust is an emotion. Yes. Well, I want to go back to how you described how you get the data, because I know that's that fuzzy scientific place. You mentioned the EEG and the goggles. 
I mean, tying it back to what you said at the beginning, that this costs a lot of money, I imagine, in some cases. So how did you ultimately commercialize this to a price point to where people could buy it for their marketing campaigns? That's a very good question. We have been following marketing demand. Initially, we started with projects that were higher involvement, higher investment projects. So uh, 30, 50K, 100 or more, depending on how many people, how many things we're measuring, how many things we're testing. And those would not happen every month, right? right? So a company would do one of those maybe once a year or twice a year or something like that. What that did, doing that kind of work, on one hand for my team and I, we are big geeks. So it made it really <laughs> real. It made it feel like it's tangible, it's real, it's here, I can see it. So that's really cool. But at that price point, we're not going to be able to be a fit for every single company. So sure. we've taken the attention data and the emotion data, and we have built predictive models out of it to okay. make it very accessible for companies who want to have an indication of what's going to get attention, what's going to trigger emotion. Interesting. Yeah. And even at those price points, when you say that, while it is a lot of money, I imagine the magnitude of the decision some of these businesses they're making and the scale of things and the ROI you get if you can make the right decision out of the gate, it's really not that much, right? And I think that's our challenge as marketers sometimes is to convince our clients that like you're going to be investing hundreds of thousands of dollars or potentially millions over the course of the next several years. Let's get the data and not just go on our intuition, right? And so I'm excited about potentially working with you guys in the future and having a subscription to some of the kinds of things you do. Let's pivot because you mentioned your team and I was checking out your website. You've got people on your team that boast bioinformatics research, brain computer interaction. I mean, Diana, some of these disciplines I have never heard of, but they make total sense, right? About humans are interacting with machines. So talk about how you found these partners, you know, how you guys work together and sort of how you use your collective knowledge to bring your insights to bear. Yeah, I am very lucky to have met my team and to be able to have worked with them for so many years. My CTO, Nan Ephraim, he is an expert in brain-computer interface and computer vision in general. So his background essentially is he has about 20 years of experience in developing these sorts of solutions. And human-computer interaction is really around what types of behaviors do you see from people who are shopping online? Can you understand, can you predict those motivators and emotions from, let's say, keystrokes and clicks and things like that? Like It could be something very simple in that sense, but he's also done work with eye tracking and other predictive eye tracking tools as well for driving simulators, for example, And when they're looking to develop predictive models for computer vision in order to detect pedestrians and cars in a certain neighborhood. So you're using computer vision and predictive modeling for lots of different applications. In our case, what we have done together with Ferdinand's expertise is we've taught a machine how to see, essentially. So taking advertisements that we have tested with eye tracking in the past, training the system, and then building the system based on the existing literature around what we know about the visual system in the brain, what do we know about what grabs attention initially. So when you put real world data with the published literature around attention, for example, you can get to 85, 90% prediction around what's going to be seen first and foremost uh, in the first second, right? So you need expertise from people like that. We have people on the team with AI expertise, software engineers and machine learning experts, and we're just moving more and more in that direction. Well, I love the idea that you're combining sort of 
primary and secondary research. I would love to spend my days doing that. So maybe someday I'll come to work for you, Diana. But (laughs) this idea that you're teaching machines to see, my understanding of predictive models is you need a ton of data, right? To be able to like chart that out. So tell us more about where all those data sources are coming from. What size and scale of clients are you working with? What is the data that informs the model? Like, Yeah, for sure. So we're looking at tens of thousands, almost 30,000 images, and it's ongoing. It's continuously growing. Plus, and all of that is built on millions of data points coming from actual eye tracking. So yes, you absolutely need a lot of data points. And the type of data looks like, let's say, the front page of a direct mail piece. That is one image. And that image comes with information on how simple it is. How is attention going on it? What is the focus? We also are developing performance scores to tell marketers, are you achieving your intended objective? Are you getting attention where you want attention to go? So it could be an image of a direct mail piece. It could be a screenshot of a first reveal of a web page, for example. Any mobile screenshot that you grab can be tested as well. So mobile sites, games, UX research, do a lot of out of home and video as well. So pre-rolls, TV commercials, things like that. Yeah. Can you give us an example of the type of client that you would work with and how they come to you with a strategic challenge? Is it typically at the sort of tactical or channel level or is there this bigger business problem they're trying to solve and asking you guys to look at the broader landscape of what they're doing? Or is it both and? It could be both because before COVID and the before times when we did a whole lot of neuroscience research, the questions were more broad and they were sometimes even like thought leadership pieces like we did for Yahoo. What is the effect of technology on our memory? That's super interesting. We did studies on what is the best customer for us to have and how do we motivate them? And those are very broad concepts, right? And you use neuroscience to really understand an audience and how they think and how they feel. And then it gets really tactical nowadays with, for example, Burger King came to us with a flyer and they were trying to get higher conversions on it that quarter for that flyer. And the execution came to us from the agency. We tested it. We provided feedback as to here's what's working. Here's where attention is going to go. Is this what you want it? No. Okay. Here's what you need to do differently from a neurodesign perspective. And so the updated version came back. We retested it and confirmed that the goal, the marketing goal is achieved now with this new iteration. And that actually resulted in about 26% increase in redemption rates for that coupon, which translated in about 45, 46% in gross profit from coupons. That's so cool. That quarter. So we have a lot of stories like that where a brand will come to us with a campaign they're doing every quarter, every month, every year, whatever, and then they know historical data and they just want to improve on it. They want to put more thought before investing the budget on online or offline. And I had the opportunity to almost see you do that analysis in real time, right? At our conference, you had us send in creative. And it was funny because we were in a room of many creatives who feel like they know this intuitively in their gut, right? They're great designers. They know what clean design looks like. They know where a headline's supposed to be staged and a logo and all those things. And yet this data allowed you to bring a lot of sort of refined awareness to the design. Like, what if we just made these minor tweaks? What would be the impact? of those outcomes. And that's one way I see people, including Symantle, leveraging your services. But I also feel like what else you said about understanding how an audience thinks and feels, that's super intriguing from a research standpoint. If I can give you sort of a segment of an audience space, and I'm super intrigued right now about these intersections of work and life, 
right? Like, has there been anything you guys have done recently related to the impact of COVID or how important people's lives now are in priority to their work that's coming through in any of the projects you're running? I would say we see a shift to um, a no-nonsense approach and communication approach, people preferring authentic brands, people being more open to try other brands that they wouldn't have tried before. Maybe there's not so much of a need to keep doing the same things that that we've always been doing. So the conversation it kind of opened the conversation to why this, why that, why do we why don't we do it differently? Now some companies are hearing this and applying it. And then mm-hmm. some companies choose to do the same thing over and over and over. So I feel like one of our roles coming into work with a brand, for example, is to let them know here's what we see from the industry because we work with like many companies from your space. And we've noticed the trend and we see some people doing this and there's some white space here and there's some opportunity there. We're able to bring that conversation before they even go forward and produce some of that content. And then when we get to the mock-ups, then we just put them through the skin and it's about which mock-up fits the goal, the marketing goal. But the problem many times, it's, it's not that the creative expert or creative executive does not know how to do or how to apply these things. Of course they do. They are all brilliant at their work. It's about the conversation that needs to happen between them, the client, the designer, all the parties involved. And then sometimes I see like a broken telephone kind of happening where the goal just gets diluted. Interesting. And a designer ends up with five calls to actions to include on a one small piece of (laughs) space of real estate. Sure. And these are just common things that are happening. And so I think what our job is, is to kind of be external to it. We don't design, we don't create, we're a third party kind of voice. And sometimes a client will listen to that, right? When we're able to tell them like, we know you're trying to do all this, it's not working and here's why and show them a different way, show them a better way. So often you're trying to choose between two or three directions to go and make massive investment. I know that we could use some outside expertise at that stage before clients are making massive decisions. So within an agency, I find that it saves some time internally for the creatives themselves working on pieces instead of going back and forth too many times. Once the goal is identified and we're creating to that goal and we can tweak and we get to an iteration, that saves internal time. And then when you go and present to the client, if you're doing two or three different options for them, you can present them with a reason. So this option is very good if you're hoping for brand awareness. This option is very good if you really want this promotion to stand out, these promotional details of your offer, let's say. Yeah. And then the discussion becomes less about which shade of purple or (laughs) how big should the logo be and it ties Ties it back to the goal exactly which is a more advisory conversation so how much time does it take so if i have a campaign i need to launch in two weeks right and i've got three creative directions how much time is required on your end to actually uncover the data and then report it back Well, because of this predictive AI system, it's very quick. We take one test and the delivery time is between two hours to one business day. So it's very quick. That is Um, awesome. I love it so much. I have so many client opportunities in my head right now. So you're going to be hearing from me. (laughs) So I understand how you help agencies, but talk a little bit about how you help on the brand side. Is it the same? Is it different? 
You know, it's a little bit different, but our clients primarily have an in-house graphic department. They have a designer maybe in-house or they work very closely with an agency who's also aligned on doing this type of work as well. But sometimes it could be easier because you have access to the data and the results right away. If I'm working with a brand manager and they just launched an email that we just tested, they can just pull up those numbers right away and we can just learn, okay, well worked. How is this different? What are we going to do next? And marketing is experimentation in the wild. So if you're able to track quickly and we have that kind of back and forth, what it does is it just elevates the market research function too from doing one like big lump project every single year to being involved daily and connecting the different teams with marketing, with design and so on. I was going to ask you that. Because I can get my head around the upfront investment and the sort of direction setting. But then what does the day-to-day consultation look like over time? I know you said it's bringing people together, but it almost feels like there's more than that. We get to know their problems and we get to know their personalities a little bit more. And we get to see a pattern, right? And we are able to connect the dots for them because we're not in the weeds And we've worked with a client for two to three years. By the time they're ready to make a decision, I can go back. Okay, guys, you usually do this. Let's look at how it worked before. So being external sometimes really helps. Bringing them ideas from other companies like theirs in their space without naming names, but at least indicating that there's another way. And some people are open to hearing suggestions from different industries Mm -hmm. because we have so many industries and There's no reason you can't connect the dots between various different things. So we're like consultants. We're part of their team. And so we'll have maybe weekly calls and check-ins to see kind of what's coming up. What do we want to test and what's working? Things like that. I love that so much because I think sometimes we get isolated in our world of marketing and we hear the terms voice of the business and voice of the customer and voice of the distributor or whoever it might be that's a stakeholder in the value chain. But I've always believed that the world is happening, right? There's a whole outside universe that can lead to great ideas and you have so much data on that. I'm looking at some of the emotions that your website mentions that you can track, things like motivation, comprehension, attention, memory. So talk us through some of those buckets of expertise and why understanding human emotion is so critical beyond just all the voice of the business and customer data that we might have. It's about removing friction. If you can create an experience where it leaves the customer feeling, huh, I get it. That was cool. You can bet that there's a lot of money that went into that to make it intuitive and to make it make sense. So motivation is a metric that we look for. Let's say we're showing a video to somebody. There's moments during the narrative of that video where the arc of the story changes. Maybe a hero is introduced. Maybe the story takes a left turn. And does the person want to stay with the narrative or do they want to avoid it? Motivation Mm -hmm. is about, I want to approach this. I'm interested in this, right? Right. You're leaning in, you want to learn more. And that has to do specifically with frontal left activation in terms of brain activity. And this is measurable using an EEG device. And when I say measurable, I mean 256 times a second, the data has to be collected because it happens so quickly. So the EEG is really good for temporal resolution. You have a high frequency of measurement. You know exactly when something happened and when that emotion took place. And so the opposite of that is For example, if you're showing a commercial and the camera is zooming out and in the background is a bathroom, but maybe a toilet comes into view, motivation is going to drop a little bit, even if 
that's not the point of it. It's just something in that narrative that makes somebody go, Ugh. but they don't realize it. <laughs> yeah. and they don't, they're not aware of it. So somebody's not going to come and tell you at second 2.345, I felt yeah. this. And then half a second later, I felt that. So it's these fine changes. And it's about removing the friction. Can we do away with that scene? Can we crop this a little differently? And what you're doing in the end is creating a message that feels easier to understand and more persuasive. And so we found, for example, in doing the work with Canada Post, that the best kind of predictor for success of a campaign of an ad is when something is highly motivating, but it's also easy to understand. So comprehension or cognitive workload has to be within certain ranges. Too much cognitive workload, it's like I'm giving you a difficult math problem. Sure. It hurts. Like the yes. brain looks like it's in pain. Right. <laughs> and too little, you're bored. Yes. You know, if it, you're just checked out, basically. So we're looking for certain levels of cognitive workload. And when the person is like, yes, I'm paying attention, I understand what's happening, and I'm highly motivated, meaning the message is simple to understand, it's persuasive, that's when we see the highest conversion rates. It's difficult wow. to do. I mean, don't yeah. get me wrong. This is right. I'm simplifying. <laughs> There's an lot. art to the science, it sounds like, <laughs> for sure. I think that's why our job as marketers is hard because we are often tasked with communicating and conveying so much, often new information, right? But also making it simple, clear, easy to understand. So I imagine just hearing you talk, you probably go through your days, Diana, like being able to look at the universe and the world and understand almost at an intuitive gut sense, like, What's going to stick? What sticks for me as a human? What's going to stick for others? Like, I love that you have that expertise. It is not necessarily a strength of mine, even though I'm in this business. I guess, what have you seen in your time where people are doing it really, really well? Are there people that come to mind who you're just like, oh, they have the magic? Or are there certain kinds of businesses or agencies or companies, projects maybe, where you just see these trends of consistency and how they have it figured out? Yeah, there are big brands who are investing millions of dollars and they have in-house neuroscientists and fMRI machines. So all the major brands have invested in this over the last decade. It's not a novel idea anymore. So I think you can bet that the bigger brands out there, Disney, Nike, they're all doing this type of work in-house, right? But I can't turn it off. I'll be honest, as I go through <laughs> the world, if I'm traveling or anywhere and, and I just... I see an ad or I hear a radio commercial or I see a poster or anything. I'm like, they need to change that or it's perfect. I'm not sure if this is a skill. Like this is not something I can put on LinkedIn, but it's just like an automatic thing that just kind of pops up right now for me. So but cool. the, the, there are some companies who have it figured out, of course. And yeah. I think it also depends by channel. The industry really matters. The frequency of the communication, the idea you're trying to communicate, the Absolutely. people you're trying to communicate to. So there's multiple variables that makes it difficult for me to say, here's the recipe for everybody. Ideally, Definitely. like I said, you want to make it motivating and easy to understand. Mm. How do you do that is right. the art. Something like 75% of media effectiveness is creative. There's a lot of science that goes into that. But at the end of the day, if the message doesn't resonate, it's not going to work. And I wonder if you can say more about that from your point of view, or maybe I have the data point wrong, but what advice do you give to your clients in that space? Yeah, Nielsen has found that it's around 47, 50%. Ipsos has found it to be as high as 75, 80%. Wow. But it's definitely at least around half of the success of a campaign, the sales that can be attributed to the quality of the content and the message being presented. The other part is the 
value of the brand. Is it trustworthy? Is it loved? And then the context, is it going at the right time? Is it reaching the right people? And all the other data points, these things have to work together. The importance of a creative execution is always going to be high. You need to know what you're saying and how you're saying it in order for the message to really be sticky, to be perceived as relevant by the minds of the people you're trying to reach. Absolutely. I want to go back because you mentioned it depends on the industry. And so Symantel, we're a very B2B shop. Our history is 40-year relationship with Caterpillar, global brand, right? Very heavy industry. But we also have a lot of healthcare clients, right? And sometimes I think about how the work we do does have a little bit of life and death consequence, right? For the people that we serve, like safety is hugely important in heavy industry. And then of course, we work with doctors and nurses, people who are literally putting their life on the line every day. So my question is, what have you learned in different kinds of clients when you're in that sort of B2B business decision maker space versus maybe some of your B2C clients? Is there anything different in the level of motivation or decision making when the stakes are so much higher? You have to still build a level of trust, whether it's B2B or B2C. The level of involvement, of investment may be higher or lower if obviously the way you go about purchasing a big piece of equipment that is in charge of, that is meant to keep people safe or the way you treat that is very differently than 50 cents off a sandwich this weekend. And so you want to communicate that in, you want to start by building trust with by being authentic with your audience. When we're talking to B2B audiences, it's very important that they feel like it's coming from a brand, a company who is being true to themselves. You want to know what you're talking about. You want to have expertise and how you communicate and really show that you are doing everything in their best interest. Here's how we're giving you value. Here's how we're helping you grow and offering value without an expectation of return essentially is where you build that you have to find the right sequence the right cascade of communications and that's where the trial comes in to see what works but there are conversion points along the way and then building relationships with the people there are a lot of b2b report is established on LinkedIn, on Facebook. You can have conversations with the individuals at these companies if you understand what their pain points are in their day-to-day job and step outside of trying to sell, but focus more on helping their world a little bit and their challenges. I'm fascinated about how much of an expert you are both on the brain and on marketing, because (laughs) some of the concepts that you're talking about are just so core to our discipline, right? I don't understand the brain side of it. You've spent a lot of time talking today about the importance of brand and customer experience in terms of removing the friction. And this is a conversation we have a lot in our walls. Some people think CX is just the new buzzword for branding, right? And yet, building trust at a very foundational level versus how you execute on that trust and all of the channels and those touch points to me are very different. And so I guess my question is, do you agree with that? Are people needing to revisit their brand strategy, even as they're working on CX, especially coming out the other side of COVID? And like you mentioned, there's so much white space to reinvent yourself. It is definitely a conversation worth having every now and again. CX is tied into everything. If you break it down into, okay, what does the user experience look like? I would start with can we just make it easier for a client to deal with us? Let's make sure someone's going to call them back, make sure they're okay. Be nice. And those kind of basic things in business. 
And then the customer experience strategy and the brand will take shape because their narrative has to be driven by the customer as well. It's a two-way conversation. So you can't sit in a room and think about how I'm going to speak at them. Right. You need to literally get on a call with them and see how they felt about an idea or run something by a client. You want to be able to detect the shift in the market or a shift in their perspective as soon as possible. That's why I love having you as a resource to our AIMIN network, because, you know, I think we have 50 or 60 agencies globally now. Have you found that these motivating factors are alike or different across the globe in terms of different consumer decision-making patterns? I kind of boil it down to humans. For the most part, humans are more alike than they are different. Right. And that's kind of what has been apparent in our neuroscience research. Even across age groups at the core, we want belonging. We want acceptance. We want to grow and do better for our families and ourselves. And so it's not a generational thing. The flavor with which we go about it differs based on the environmental and economic factors that raised us. So in terms of geography differences, it depends on what point during the analysis. At the very beginning, when somebody sees the same ad being viewed by somebody in North America or somebody in Asia, for example, what gets their attention in that first half a second is going to be identical. However, okay. what keeps their attention after the first second is going to be different. Wow. So at which point, like, do you want to get their attention and lose it right away? then you're going to deploy the same ad throughout the world. You want to grab their attention with what we know from neuroscience, high contrast, certain colors, certain shapes, images of people, lifestyle imagery, and things like that. There are certain triggers that are going to draw the eye, but then you really need to understand your audience for how do they read? Do they read from left to right like we do, or do they read from right to left? Right. Is there a local person who, a celebrity or a local kind of expert that you can leverage to add that flavor. Yeah. And I think finding that break even point about how custom do you go when you have a global campaign, but I love that you have experience and can teach us that. Talk a little bit, this is going to get kind of tactical on you, but when you think about productizing, talk about how we use models in our brain to sort of like make decisions. This goes back again to at which point in the exposure do you get attention and for what? So I'm a brand. I want to get attention from brand new prospects, people who have never heard of me before. I rely on bottom-up processing, which means that person existing in the world is just kind of going about their life. They're not looking for my brand. They don't even know my brand exists. Can I grab their attention? Can I trigger their emotion? Can I be embedded into their memory? That is a task on its own that relies on bottom-up processing because they have no previous experience of my brand. They have no assumptions that they can bring to the table, right? A lot of predicting attention has to do with predicting bottom-up if it's a brand new visitor to a website, for example. They're not there looking for something specific. They've never been there before. They're just kind of orienting themselves. And so that's where that sort of processing takes place. And you have to have a design strategy and a communication strategy that's fit for the new user. Are you dealing with a user who is familiar with your brand? Maybe I buy the same toothpaste and I just need to find it, basically, because I can recognize it very easily. Or I, I go to the same site to check the weather. So I just need to go to the place where I know the information exists. Then that is a different way of designing and communicating for that. And that has to do with top down in the sense of top being the mind. And so if you think like a triangle, the person has an idea or a concept or an experience from before that they're bringing and they're looking for something. 
Yeah. Instead of just kind of like existing in the world. Well, you talked earlier about combining disciplines. And so I think sort of education is a realm that I always take a lot from my mom as an educator. And she says, it's always easier to latch on to something people already know, right? Because they know what they're looking for. So I think as a communicator and as a marketer, I try to keep that in mind when we're building new campaigns. Okay, last question about your work, and then I'm going to turn it to you. You've worked with clients like General Motors and Colgate-Palmolive and Costco and Miller Coors, like these huge brands. Like, give me a case study of one that you're super proud of that maybe a major brand came to you, they leveraged your research, and they had some aha moments. I could say almost every study contains an aha moment. The first point is where we learn the difference between how people feel and what they say. Mm-hmm. And that's the, oh, wait, there's gaps here. Yeah, And for me, it was like, initially, I was like, wow, really? But now I'm kind of like used to that. I'm like, yes, of course, there there will be a lot of people will say in a survey, I'll buy the eco friendly cleaner. But that is not necessarily behavior that you see at the shelf. So there are differences between how people feel and what they do. And what is more fascinating is to see that their behavior is more closely correlated with like what ends up what they end up doing is more correlated with how they feel, not what they said they're going to do, right? right? Right. So if we take a minute to listen to brain activity or non-conscious data in general, I would bet on that in predicting what people will actually end up doing out in the world in mass, basically. We also learned a lot of things as well from doing this type of research. So those are kind of the aha moments. But General Motors, for example, we were able to study a group of people and their brain activity when they were exposed to different vehicles and different vehicle designs. And which one do they perceive to be innovative and which one do they perceive to be as familiar? And some brands obviously are in the space where innovation is really important right? You don't want to look like your competitor necessarily. You want to be unique. You want to stand out. So we found a neural correlate and we worked with scientists to look at when a certain image comes up, that brain perceives it as being innovative. And that neural correlate is because of the result of this type of commercial work that maybe would not have happened so easily and so quickly if it was in the lab. Academic research can take five, six years, but we do it in months. How do you take context into account of what's going on with people's lives or where their head is in that moment? What have you learned about that? That absolutely matters. The way you recruit people, we have other criteria. So I'm talking about neuroscience research when it's done properly, like a full study. You want to recruit people who maybe, in the case of automotive, drive a certain company, love certain brands, also buy certain products, and they come to the lab after being recruited for that, right? They have good vision out of both eyes, which means they can participate in the eye tracking, things like that. There's a lot of like physiological things that we need as well to check for. They need to be sober, which is surprising, <laughs> but we have to include on there. Yeah. And then once they arrive, we do almost like a benchmark or a calibration stage because your excited brain looks different than my excited brain. Mm-hmm. We want to know how each person's brain looks like at the core baseline. And then when exposed to the stimulus, we look at differences. So any movement, any reaction is compared against their own baseline. That delta is taken and then averaged across the group. If you have a finding, you want to say we have 95% confidence that this is an effect that we have found. So you can trust that information. Yes, absolutely. We'll get back to the rest of the interview in just a minute. But first, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Symantle. 
I happen to know a thing or two about them because, well, I'm one of the owners. We are an industrial consumer marketing firm with an obsessive focus on customer experience. We create killer campaigns, but we also help organizations create programs that align back to their business strategies. Most importantly, we have a lot of fun and love what we do. And this year marks 40-ish years of doing it. Unfortunately, there's not enough time to explain the ish on this promo. But if you know us, you'll know it makes perfect sense. And if you don't, please reach out. We'd love to talk. Or you can head to samanal.com slash blog to learn more about us with articles, tips and tricks, do-it-yourself tools, and much more to help you keep learning and growing right alongside us. All right. Well, I'm going to pivot. I want to end with our last few minutes here and talking a little bit about you. You mentioned out of the gate, Diana, that you also are a lover of personal growth and those sort of things. So what are some of your core beliefs or secrets to success that you have learned both in your career and your personal life that you would like to impart your wisdom on our listeners? Definitely help without expectation, offer value whenever possible. For me personally, it took many years to develop boundaries as well. So obviously don't help to your detriment, but know yourself and be aware of your boundaries, your hard boundaries, your soft boundaries, respect those as well. And the one thing I always think, just believe people when they show you who they are, believe them the first time. Um, I love that. (laughs) I struggle with that, that feeling and want to give of myself, but also knowing like, I'm not going to be able to show up well if I don't have those boundaries and have the ability to say no, but it's a constant balance. What about some failures? What's something that's maybe happened in your career when you think back on and you're like, man, I learned a lot from that? Well, early on, I was taking on a lot of unpaid work and a lot of labor that was emotional. It was physical. It just added up. What ended up happening in one instance, one of our partners broke a non-compete agreement as well, which made it really it kind of was a bit of a shock. Right. And it kind of made us, okay, let's go back and see how we can what do we do about this in the future? How do we kind of mitigate those kinds of things? So I believe life is going to happen to you. Even if you try to avoid all BS, stuff is going to happen. <laughs> so it's, it's really knowing who you are, what your priorities are, having your boundaries. But unfortunately, it's not something we can download to the next generation on a little flash drive. They have to, we all have to go through all these things. On yes, our own. I know. Yes, totally your lessons are spot on, know your values, know your boundaries, and then pass that on to the next generation. What's a question that you're wrestling with right now that you'd love to ask someone else curious? I'm curious how other leaders maintain focus and motivation for themselves enough that they can impart it to others. Right. Like how much of that is discipline and just doing it? How much of that is affirmations or what are people doing? And maybe this is normal. I get on the wagon and I fall off the wagon. I get on the wagon and fall off the wagon. You and I are so similar in that way. And I am definitely in one of these blah spaces, which is so foreign to my like way of being in the world, right? I'm a push, push, push momentum person, goal setting. I love to be busy, but I just don't know if it's just coming out the other side of COVID or what, but like a lot of people are feeling that lack of motivation right now and trying to figure out what's next. I think that's part of the whole great resignation. So I'll be interested to see if you do any studies about that, Diana, because I want to learn it too. (laughs) All right. Well, we're up on time. Thank you. Thank you for being here. I have learned so much. We can't wait to share this episode and you'll be hearing from me very soon. Thank you so much. 
Well, I learned so much from my chat with Diana, and I hope you did too. I admire the way she blazed her own trail by combining disciplines she found fascinating and creating a whole new field that didn't even exist at the time. I could really talk to her all day. I actually got to see her consult in real time at the recent Amen conference where we met, and it was pretty amazing. The stat she talked about that as much as 75 to 80% of media effectiveness hinges on creative is mind blowing. It's about the quality of the content and the message being presented. But the value of the brand and trust is also really important. Whether you're a B2B or B2C brand, at the end of the day, we're all humans, so it all boils down to emotion. There's definitely an art to the science. Our job as marketers is often hard, but insight from companies like True Impact can help make it a little easier. If you like what you heard today, check out more episodes of the podcast at our website, marketingsweats.com, or find us wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe. That's a wrap for today. Keep up the good work, friends, and we'll chat again soon.